So basically what uh, central banks can do is they can't like really print money the way, you know, we see all those money printer go burr memes from- Right, it's not, it's not that yeah. simple. Right. Yeah, it's not that simple. So basically what the Federal Reserve can do is when they buy a bond or when they buy a treasury or when they buy an asset, they, they can basically only buy it from primary dealers. So primary dealers are basically your banks. So, you know, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, all those banks. So what those banks do is they buy uh, treasuries from the U.S. Treasury directly, and then they sell it to the Fed, but then they don't get cash from the Fed for selling it to the Fed. What they get in return is a bank reserve. So what this bank reserve is, it's for the most part useless unless the bank actually bothers to use it. So the way the bank can use a bank reserve is they can lend against the bank reserve. And this is what, this is what actually creates money. So if banks are happy to lend, that's where money is created. What's good, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to episode 72 of Highly Invested, where we invest in ourselves, talk about personal growth, and we ask entrepreneurs and high performers about the best investments they've made in themselves that help get them to where they are today. Today on the show, we've got a 16-year-old entrepreneur with 130 podcast episodes under his belt. He produces the podcast Market Champions, and this year he's brought on big-time U.S. hedge fund and money managers like Raoul Paul, Jim Rogers, and Brent Johnson, while growing his account Elite.Investor on Instagram. Now, during the summer, I employed him to help run my Instagram account when I just didn't have the mental energy to keep it going. And he's become a trusted ally along my entrepreneurship journey, so I wanted to bring him on to share what he's learned this year from his impressive guests, his dedication, and his love for investing. So today, we've got Srivatsan Prakash back on the show. How are you doing today, Shreve? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. I'm doing well. Merry Christmas. Yeah, to you too. It's awesome Thanks. to do a podcast on Christmas. I know. I figured I could squeeze in some of the regular things and get that out of the way. And well, thank you for joining me. Do you celebrate Christmas yourself? No, uh, I don't. But yeah, Merry Christmas to you. That's right. Well, no, thank you. And again, thanks for sharing the time. Now, originally you're from Chennai in India, right? Yeah, I was then, born there, but I've never like really lived in India. So, um, Right. And then you grew up in Singapore? Yeah, so before Singapore, I actually lived on the west coast of Africa for about one and a half years in Ivory Coast. So after that, I moved to Singapore where I lived for nine years, around nine years. And then I came to Canada in 2018. So yeah, it's pretty cool. This man's cultured. <laughs> <laughs> and so well, what's your favorite thing about Christmas in Canada besides no school? Really nothing, to be honest, because uh, there's usually like piles of snow outside and like nothing is open because, you know, it's a public holiday. So, you know, I don't really have much to do. So well, I guess I'm like free for the whole day. No, there's no, there's usually nothing to do. So I can spend the time reading. I can spend the time doing whatever I want. So that's probably- Free time, like, Yeah. Sorry, Shravatsan time is always good time, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Now just to recap, because obviously we had you on for episode eight and I wanted to chat because, you know, you've been doing great things this year. And just to think that you're, you're 17 now or I'm still 16? 17 next month. Next month. Okay. So you're a January baby. Yeah early on in the year. Amazing, man. So um, congrats on getting accepted to uh, at least the University of Ottawa. Thank you. <laughs> Where I'm an alumni. Did you get into U of T? Well, uh, I haven't like finished the application yet. So uh, okay, I would. Yeah. So there's still, there's still some time for that. Fair enough. Um, but that, that's still the one that you're really hopeful 
And then there's another one uh, called Shulik, which which is actually like the cheapest one here. So and it's got a good uh, program. So if I get in there, you know, that'll be good. <laughs> That would be good. Yeah. And so like, are, are you excited about the pros? Like, I, I imagine you're not thinking about it, but you, you kind of have to be because when you're going in, well, you're in grade 12 now, right? Even though you're right. still, right. So it is something you have to start thinking about because it's a big part of your life. So like, are you, are you nervous? Are you, are you still fairly sure what you want to do? Uh, finance yeah, related? No. Like, tell me more. Yeah, I mean, like everything that I've applied to is finance. So um, in the regardless of what the degree is, it's finance. So um, I'm not. I'm not worried about like going to college or going to university. I'm just worried about not getting in. So that's the only thing I've got to worry about. Like once you get in, you know, I just want to get done with the four years, and then you know, I'll be. I'll be done. Well, it's funny, right? Because the hardest part is just getting in, really. Right. Making sure you get like entered into the club, and then making sure that you stay in. Stay you do a decent club. job. Yeah. 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 And and is it so like finance is what you're going into, or any sort of economics branch, or no, just finance, just um, management and finance for the most part. Gotcha. And do you still want to be a head fund manager? Yeah. But uh, I think management is probably like the most useful degree. So like, let's say, you know, I don't do too well uh, as an investor. And then mm -hmm. I have so, sort of a good degree to back me up. You know, I could go work as a manager and, you know, that's pretty high paying. You know, if you get in five, 10 years into the job, you could probably be making six to seven figures. So, yeah. So I think it's like a valuable degree and, you know, yeah. it keeps my options open so I could go ahead and do sort of like a professional degree, like a CFA or a CPA or something like that. Or I could go get an MBA. But MBAs are like too expensive today. So it's most likely going to be sort of like a professional degree. So it's easier yeah. to keep your options open when you have like a DBA. So yeah. yeah. And when you say MBAs are too expensive, is that mainly just because, you know, a lot of uh, employers would be looking for MBAs from specific schools and like those schools are just kind of cr crazy priced? And like, even in general, like MBAs are crazy price. Like if you go through, uh, well, and you know, we're Canadian, right? So I'm thinking Canadian, I'm like, it can't be that bad, but it's still just expensive. It, 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 I mean, like even in Canada, it's like crazy expensive. Uh, unless you go to like, say a small, very small university, but um, there's a school, uh, the University of Toronto's um, business school is called the Rotman School of Commerce. Sorry, the Rotman School of Management. And they've got, a, they've got an MBA program, which is pretty expensive if I'm not wrong. Um, so one second, let me see if I can find the fees. Yeah. So the total is so the first year cost 46,000 and the second year also cost 46,000. So for you, Toronto. Yeah. For Canadian citizens. Wow. I didn't and permanent know. Residents. So yeah, so it's and that's with residents as well. No, 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 that's without residents. This is the academic fee. So that's $92,000. Just for I didn't know Canada was that expensive. No, I didn't close. Yeah. Now, so like, obviously you, you, because the thing is when, when I see what you're doing on the side with your podcast and like, dude, you've put out 118 episodes almost or something like that already. Like 130, I think. Yeah. 130, 100, I, like I tried to lowball it so that I wasn't over the top. <laughs> yeah. You've put out a phenomenal amount. So like without a doubt, you're gaining traction there. You're using Twitter to contact and reach out to these massive hedge fund managers. And the best part is that because you're this young guy with this ambition, it appeals to them, right? And so like, do you see necessarily, um, I, I guess just do you see now that there are other paths besides university, but you're still just doing that because it's the most secure uh, way to at least make sure you've covered all the bases? Yeah, so like, basically my goal right now is to, um, in the next four years, so by the time I'm done with university, I wanna make sort of 1500 to $2,000 a month with the podcast and YouTube. So, you know, I've got a lot of time you know, as long as I keep bringing Oh the man, even by the end of this year, you'll probably get there. 
Just because like the caliber of guests you're bringing on. We're going to elaborate a bit more on that later, but yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah. So uh, if I get to that goal, you know, then sort of uh, if I move to a cheaper city, like, you know, you in Ottawa, so Ottawa is pretty cheap. Uh, you can live in the studio for uh, around 1500 or even less a month. So if 1124. Uh, yeah, exactly. Not bad. Yeah. So uh, if I, if, if that, if that happens or if that comes to fruition, uh, I'm able to cover the rent and my expenses through passive income. And then you know, I can spend the time focusing just on investing and trading. So yeah, man. And well, I mean, you've still started investing in, in smaller doses, right? right? In yeah, smaller yeah exactly. Yeah. I, uh, I manage like a few thousand dollars of my own money. So <laughs> I love all. that. I love hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to start somewhere, right? And, and I just got to ask, so like who, who was it that ultimately got you interested in, in just like the self-education and the finance? Was it your dad or someone in your family or who were some of the role models that helped you just uh, well, I've, uh, well, pers- I, Personally, like I started when I was in the ninth grade and, you know, I was back in Singapore then. And, um, yeah. but, uh, you know, I've always had an interest in sort of economics, uh, geography, politics, all that kind of stuff. So right. the one way you can sort of bring all that together is investing in finance. So, I uh, know I started, so I started reading a book when I was in grade nine at the library. So, you know, I just went, picked up a random book from the investing section, you know, it looked good. It was, I think called finding number one stocks by, by a guy named Kevin Mattress. I don't know. The book was like, okay, but it introduced me to all like the terms that I needed to know. So like P ratios, PB ratios, et cetera. So that was, that was pretty good. So you know, from then I was hooked and you know, I eventually came to where I am today. Good. Those first few things where you start with and like, okay, I understand this. I can look for this. And then you keep going. Amazing. And then, so what's your schoolwork? What's your approach for that? Because obviously you're still a student. So you're dealing with a lot of homework that you probably don't hey. want to do. Um, do you procrastinate or do you get things done ahead of time so that you never have to look at them again? Well, uh, it actually depends on the subject because some subjects are pretty enjoyable to do. Like, for example, I actually enjoy writing essays for economics because, uh, you know, it's actually fun to write. So, you know, I'm able to find points, find sources, and I actually enjoy doing that kind of stuff That's compared good. to, I say, uh, the other course that I have right now, which uh, which basically, uh, which basically, it's like really, really hard to actually get a good grade. So uh, that, so that's one. No, I don't really want to. I've got an assignment that I have to complete over the holidays. So I've just pushed it to like next week. So, <laughs> but yeah. Well, it's good. To, it's good to have time. I just, it's funny because when I think back, I was the kind of person that like I didn't procrastinate, so I would always get my work done. But I would start it right away, and then I would finish it maybe three weeks before I even had to hand it in. But my problem was that I never wanted to look at the paper again. like once I was done it I'm like I'm done I'm gonna hand it in when it's like I literally had three weeks that I could have gone over it and reread it but for some reason I'm just that's the way I was I'm just like I don't want to anymore I mean I mean I understand that like uh, (laughs) I don't I don't want to look at my essays either I usually just you know when I'm when I'm typing I just read that I just read through them like once or twice and you know I'm done I don't look at it again well it's it's good to revise it a couple times so at least clearly you benefit from doing that (laughs) I usually finish like a few days before, not three weeks before. So, and they usually give the assignments a few days before, not three weeks before either uh, as well. So, uh. <laughs> yeah. is that a new thing? That, that's high school, right? They're like, Hey, by the yeah. way, uh, this assignment's due next Monday. It's Friday. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. And it's just 50 pages long. Come on. You, you can oh, do it. <laughs> right. You can do it. Yeah. Um, what was one of your best subjects or I should say, what was one of your best grades last semester? And uh, what was the reason for that? Last semester in like, what do you mean? Uh, wasn't English your, your best score that you ended up getting? So that was sort of like 
me and last semester and like the first semester because last semester was technically like grade 11 last semester which was okay well just talk about the english essay that i helped you out with <laughs> so jordan helped me out with an english essay so he basically went through uh, an essay when i was doing english uh over august so during, during i won't the tell summer. your teacher yeah no but, but I, I was, was like i didn't do much i just looked at it and i was like here yeah. change a few things but i, I was quite yeah pleased with how it came out so yeah yeah so uh that was that was pretty good so i did write it pretty well in english over over the summer so i, I usually do very badly in english so it was, it was it was actually good to get a good grade and it was actually good to see you know if you actually work hard and you put in the effort a teacher would actually give you a good mark i know this yeah. is the first good english teacher because she gave like everyone 90s and everyone bothered to work because it was grade 12 and this is the mark that's actually going to university so now if you put in the work, you know, you're actually going to get uh, what you want to get. So, Right. And like English, it, it seems self-explanatory, but the more you practice, the better you're going to get, right? Right. Without a doubt. Exactly. And what, what's funny is because even myself, like, I like to think that I'm intelligent enough, but it just, you know, when, when, you, when you measure your intelligence by the grades you would get, right, which most people technically do, even when I was looking through your essay and like saying, Shreve, I recommend maybe just try this and that. I was worried you'd get a much worse mark after what I'd done, even though I'm an English teacher, you know, I've been an English teacher and all that, but I was just like, no, I think this is good. But anyways, I'm glad you ended up getting a good mark from that. <laughs> Most definitely. And yeah, so, well, after this wild year, what are some of your highlights for 2020? Yeah, so 2020 was pretty, it was a different year for sure. Um, probably the biggest highlight was being able to sort of enjoy March 2020 you know, with the market falling and me actually knowing what was happening. So, you know, the last time, you know, some crazy crash happened was probably like 2008 right. uh, when, uh, you know, I was like four years old. So I didn't really know what was happening. Uh, so uh, in March, you know, when I was actually, I actually knew what the Federal Reserve was and, you know, they managed interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, going through March and, you know, we see this, we see this massive volatility and the VIX hitting, I think, 85 or so. So that was probably a big highlight. And then, you know, getting well, a good grip. I just want to comment, like, we, we lived through our first market crash as investors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was fun. Like, uh, it was also, like, short-lived. You know, it collapsed, and then, you it know, it just rocketed it up. And, you know, the S&P could probably hit 4,000 before we see, a next, uh, we see our next crash. You know, I don't know. And nobody knows, how, you know, when the market's going to turn and when it's going to shift. Yeah. And yeah, so that was probably the that was probably one of the biggest highlights. And obviously, another highlight was getting a good grade in English. So was it? Oh, good. I'm glad. Then. <laughs> yeah. So uh, finally, you know, after uh, that's uh, that's probably like my weakest subject, and I did well on it. So I'm happy uh, with that. And well, and English yeah. is obviously not your first language either, right? So that's extremely impressive. It's not, but I think I probably know English better than any other language that I know, so. Right, but I mean, and again, it's just because you've used it over time, but still, it's, it's yeah. impressive. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's probably it. Uh, those are the two biggest highlights, I'd say. And then you know, probably being able, since we have, uh, so we've got part online and part in school. So you know, when I'm at home, you know, I don't really have to do too much work. So, you know, just watch the videos or, you know, you just go sit for the online class and, you know, whatever the, whatever the teacher says, you just do it. So. Mm -hmm. That's basically, uh, you know, how we do it. So, uh, so for example, if you're able to complete the work ahead of time, you know, when, and you've got an online class, you, know, you can spend the class doing something else. Or you could work on, say, another assignment or another project, or you could just sit down, read, or do whatever you want. So, and I think that's probably a big highlight as well. I know yeah. the shift from, uh, you know, proper school to half online, half uh, actual school. 
you know, and like my grades haven't like suffered because of that, you know, I've done pretty well. So, yeah. Good. Yeah. And I think also just like, you know, when you go into the same thing you're used to, you dread it more, but because they, they had to change it and they had to try something different, you're kind of getting a new experience. So it's, it's yeah, not as it's actually fun. Good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that then. Cause I've, I've got a lot more questions about, you know, the direction of schooling and what you think about that. And I'd like you to cover on that, but um, I'm, I'm just glad to hear you've enjoyed it then because yeah. It just yeah, after the holidays, we're going to go full on online. Uh, that's what Doug Ford said. So we're going to go full on, uh, you know. It goes just... to show that innovation in education is not necessarily a bad thing, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not. But I mean, it depends on the person. Like, you know, some people actually do better, you know, working in school, you know, working yeah. in groups at school, uh, meeting their friends. And I don't really care about that. You know, I just care about having a book to read at school and making sure that I actually get a good grade. And if I'm able to get a good grade, like this way, compared to going to school, you know, I might as well just stay home. You know, it doesn't really make a difference. And right. the problem was when there was second semester of grade 11, when we probably, when we had like COVID and it was from March to June, and you know, they didn't do anything at all. So, you know, they just gave us assignments to do. They didn't teach us the concepts because, you know, uh, they were actually not allowed to do like video calls and stuff with students. So and that was, that was interesting because, uh, because that was like really hard to study. And, you know, you know, people didn't really have like a will to study or want to study because why would you study when the teacher's not teaching? Yeah. So, yeah. It just, eh. if it, it almost just felt broken. Right. I imagine you were like, exactly. this yeah. is strange. This is weird. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I feel bad for like the people who are in grade 12 because, you know, they actually had to work otherwise, you know, because they were, they had to send that transcript to university. And so true. They don't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah, right. And teachers happy. too. I mean, like it must be so hard and you know, it, it's a difficult job enough, I think being a teacher, but then throwing this in the mix, my sister-in-law is, is a teacher and I know it's, it's been very difficult, especially when there, you know, are students in her classes that don't even speak English. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like that's a reality of, of teachers nowadays, just kind of packing classes with students to make it fit and to please the parents. And it's, it's not easy. So when you combine all that with COVID, it's a, uh, it's a mess. <laughs> It's a mess, but I imagine, again, though, I think innovation in education was sort of needed at some point. Fascinating to see how this whole thing has accelerated it. But right. you're back, back to your podcast before we get into that. So who are some of your favorite guests that you had on in 2020? Because you've got some big names like Raul Paul, Stephen Metra, Jim Rogers coming out soon, right? Like you've got an yeah. episode with him? Yeah, exactly. So probably, yeah, probably I'd say that my favorite episode was with a guy named Matthew Peterson, because you know, that was as a good episode because I learned uh, about how you could sell puts. So sell put options to actually get into positions. So what you basically do is let's say, you know, so sorry, a, is this a hedge? Like when you're holding long? No, 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 no. Oh, so no. this is sort of like, so let's say volatility is high. So when volatility is high, option prices go up. And so when you see put option prices that are like really expensive, what you can do is, so let's say you want, let's say you want to get into Apple and the, and the, uh, and let's say Apple is trading for a hundred dollars. Okay, and so the puts are the sort of put options for say 85 and volatility is high are going to be very expensive because you know volatility is high and you know volatility is a big component of what constitutes option prices. So basically what you have to do is when you sell a put option, you're liable uh, to buy stock. So if you sell a put option at a certain price, so at $75 and the price of Apple actually goes below $75 and you think $75 is a great, is a great price to pay for Apple, mm -hmm. you'd be happy to buy Apple stock at $75. So if you sell those options and, and, uh, and the stock price goes below $75, you'll have to buy Apple, you'll have to buy 100 Apple shares at $75. So now what happens is 
Yeah, so this is this is like really good because you know you're able to get a good price. But at the same time, if Apple actually does not go below seventy five dollars, then you're able to keep all the premium that you just got from the option because when you sell an option, you get a premium for the option. So, so yeah, I think that was probably like the highlight of that interview. And then you know I, I was able you, to like, have you have you practiced that or been able to practice it at all? Like try it out yourself? No, because uh, uh, when I because you know he said because he did a lot of this during March when like also he was like. Super okay, duper high, I and I wasn't like aware of the strategy back then. Right. And uh, volatility has like really died down since then. So right. I haven't really had a chance to do it, but I've looked at some opportunities where you know, it would be possible. I'm just not sure, but uh, because well, you know, if the stock goes for three dollars, and you know the value of an uh, the option is usually an option for a hundred shares, so you know that would be three hundred dollars of my account. So it depends on whether I really want to risk that much of my account, or you know I want to tie up that much in margin. So, you know, when I get larger, I'm most definitely going to do, or, you know, if you see another event like March, yeah. I'd be happy to. Yeah, it's a good strategy. And at least like you've understood it enough that you can see that and see how you could use it uh, practically and apply it. Um, right. So just, just want to ask a few questions on that though. So do you have to own it or like, would it be the difference between covered puts or just simply writing a put where you get the premium, but like writing a put that's very unlikely to happen? So you would have to like sort of, uh, it would have to be cash secured. So let's say you're writing a put for $2. So you would have to set aside two hundred dollars. So because two dollars, right? Because it's always times a hundred shares, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you would have to set aside two hundred dollars in case the in case you actually have to buy the shares on the put. Okay, well then, say, sorry, I just want to ask then, how do you go about writing the put? Is that something that's actually easy to do? Yeah, you could just sell it. You could just go to your broker and you know you could just sell a put and you know he would just tie up you know that two hundred dollars that's required in margin. But after that, that's it. No, because okay, I didn't know if because obviously the broker I use, I don't trade options yet. I know <laughs> there's just obviously so much you can get into, but right. I know that they have options there and there are a lot of obviously um, call options and put options already existing. So I imagine my first thought was that you could go through what they have and choose what people have written. But then mm -hmm. so what you're also saying is that you could technically write one yourself kind of thing. Yeah, you could just write, you can just write one at the market. So let's say you've got a share, you've got 200, you're about to tie up $200, you know, $2 a share into $100. Let's say the put option is going for 0 0.5 or $50. So just sell the option and you, know, you don't have to, if you're, and let's say you don't have to buy the shares so the, uh, the price of the stock stays above $2 and you're making $50 over $200 or 25% uh, return on investment, which is like pretty good, like really good actually. So. Right. Well, exactly. If you know how to use it, right? Apparently it's exactly. a machine. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah, definitely good. Now, what are some of the most interesting things you learned from your guests as well? And I just want to ask around these certain topics, uh, the U S dollar yeah. inflation <laughs> and the role of the federal reserve. Yeah. So, you know, you could basically put those topics together and into one big topic about inflation. Okay. Fair enough. Well, that's what yeah. I was hoping for. So I was like, do you mind <laughs> running through just what you've learned? Because, you know, I, I always was expecting with money printing that inflation was coming soon, but a lot of what buy gold, I- Buy gold, buy gold, <laughs> Right? Buy gold. But then at the same time, isn't um, listening to you a lot more now is that the, you know, this is actually a deflationary process of you know, right. printing and pumping into equity. So yeah, do you mind explaining a bit about that? Cause... Yeah, sure. So, uh, so basically what uh, central banks can do is they can't like really print money the way, you know, we see all those money printer go burr means from- Right, it's not, it's not that yeah. simple. Right. Yeah, it's not that simple. So basically what the Federal Reserve can do is when they buy a bond or when they buy a treasury or when they buy an asset, they, they can basically only buy it from primary dealers. So primary dealers are basically your banks. So, you know, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, all those banks. So what those banks do is they buy uh, treasuries from the U.S. Treasury directly and then they sell it to the Fed. 
but then they don't get cash from the Fed for selling it to the Fed. What they get in return is a bank reserve. So what this bank reserve is, it's for the most part useless unless the bank actually bothers to use it. So the way the bank can use a bank reserve is they can lend against the bank reserve. And this is what, this is what actually creates money. So if banks are happy to lend, that's where money is created. So before COVID-19, the reserve requirement in the U.S. was 10%. So if I had to lend out $100, I had to have $10 in reserves. And so, you know, if I, so therefore for every dollar in reserve, I could create $10 in credit. Okay. And, and just to give an example. So it's like if someone were to deposit a million dollars, that means they can then lend out 9 million, the other 90%, right? Right. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's just From like, what yeah, I understand, so they, yeah. they can keep, they can lend out 90% of what. So yeah. So no, no, I think it's sort of like, if you lend out $10 million, you need to have $1 million in reserves. So if I lend out $10 million, I will have $1 million in reserves. Okay. Gotcha. So, yes. So yeah. it's 10% of how much you lend out. And so this is what actually creates money in the economy. So when banks lend, that's what uh, creates money in today's society because today's banking system is a fractional reserve banking system. So it's not so, cash, it's a bank reserve. Yeah, exactly. So the Fed does not print cash, it prints a bank reserve. And right now what's happening is, uh, number one, uh, credit, uh, uh, like basically all the banks are tightening their credit standards because if you look at you know, even last week, we saw the weekly jobless numbers at about 800,000, which is crazy. And we didn't see any, we can't see any credit creation because why would the banks land number one at these record low interest rates? Because the interest rates are like supremely low, uh, you know, they're at 0%. So, you know, the bank has no incentive to supply credit. And then the second thing is, even if they would supply credit, it would be very risky because, you know, these people are out of jobs. And if the stimulus bill doesn't get passed, we would see a lot of, we would see millions of evictions in the U.S. So, you know, you don't want to lend to these people. And so, you know, banks are scared of doing that. So they wouldn't, so they're not lending right now. And the other interesting thing about this is what Milton Friedman uh, called, the in, uh, called the interest rate fallacy. So a lot of people associate uh, low rates with high inflation, but it's actually low rates are deflationary, or uh, I'm sorry, low rates are a sign of deflation because interest rates are sort of the price of credit. So if you want to borrow money, the price that you pay is the interest rates, right? So yeah, on top of the principal. Right. So the price is basically the interest rate. So if nobody wants to borrow or if nobody, uh, so if nobody wants to borrow and there's no demand for credit, then interest rates are going to be extremely low. So if there's no demand for credit, there's going to be no inflation. So therefore, low interest rates are actually a sign of deflation or a sign of extremely low inflation compared to what other people believe, which is that low interest rate actually lead. Uh, low interest rates are actually inflationary. And, you know, Milton Friedman called this the interest rate fallacy. And yeah, so... That's probably. Is this where you could use Japan as an example? Like just right, to... exactly. Yeah, Japan's probably like the best example because they've done like QE like twenty four times, and you know we haven't seen any inflation there. So yeah, that's probably. So unless so if you actually want to like generate hyperinflation, you would have to write. Uh, you would have to rewrite the Federal Reserve Act, and you have to make sure that you know the Federal Reserve actually has the power to increase the money supply and you know, directly monetize. Uh, treasury debt. So, you know, people believe that the Federal Reserve can directly monetize treasury debt and give them cash, but that's not true. Um, they can only give the banks bank reserves and the banks use their money from these operations to go and buy treasury secu uh, securities. And, you know, people tend to argue that now banks, well, they're not lending to the real economy, but they're lending to the U.S. government. Surely that must be inflationary. And, but that's not true because they're lending to the safest creditor on the planet, which is the U.S. government. And right. yeah. But then the U.S. government doesn't have any money, right? Like they don't make it themselves. So like, yeah. so what, what does this tell you? Like knowing all of this, you know, what does it feel like your best approach is going forward? 
the the best, so the best approach is probably that in the in the next few years we probably or at least as long as COVID lasts and the banks don't lend, we're not going to see any inflation. That's right. and as long as that's true, you know, bond yields are probably going to head lower, and you know we're not going to see any inflation, and you know. Uh, the data so uh, you know, so people who are looking for say five to ten percent increases in the CPI they're probably going to be pretty disappointed because uh, you know uh, there's there's no inflation because there's no money printing and right and, and but I also lending in the economy and then well I was also going to say and then I imagine like a lot a lot of people who traditionally think that way thinking oh, I'm not going to get into the markets now there's got to be another correction it's like they can almost keep climbing for the next few years as long as they don't raise interest rates at any point right. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's no like limit to how long euphoria can go. Uh, you know, a lot of very smart people shorted the uh, shorted the dot com bubble in 1995, 1996. But if they had held on to their shorts, now even then you could just argue that you know it was euphoric. But then uh, after that, it con- it continued till 2002. So well, six years. years. It's like it's yeah. like Michael Burry calling the big short in 2001 or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he called it in 2004 or five. You know, he was pretty early with that. But you know, in the end, it played out pretty well because he was just owning an insurance contract. He wasn't like directly short anything. So if you right. were short, so he uh, was paying he was paying interest on the swaps that he had bought, yeah. but essentially everything had premiums. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Gosh, and so so what does this tell you about the banks? Like, what's really more important, Fed Reserve or the banks? Yeah, the commercial banks are actually what's more important because you know people believe that the Federal Reserve is sort of a central bank, but the problem with the Federal Reserve is they're not actually a central bank. They're sort of a domestic banking regulator because number one, they don't have any control over the money supply because the central bank would have control over the money supply and they don't. And the other thing is they only focus on what's happening in the US. So let's say there's sort of a US dollar shortage in London, then the Federal Reserve, uh, they're probably gonna ask, was well, that our problem? Was that the, it's in England, it's US dollar. So is that even our problem? So, you know, <laughs> So the most important factor, at least at the moment, is the, is the commercial banks. It's not the Federal Reserve. And one of the interesting things is uh, there's a guy named Warren Mosler who's an economist. And what he's pointed out is that banks, uh, so banks usually create credit whenever they feel like it, and they don't actually pay attention to the reserves. And yeah. when the next accounting period comes, so when they have to like do their accounting, they'll, they'll borrow the reserves when required. So you know, they could, so let's say they only have 10 million reserves, they could create 1 billion in credit and you know, forego and forget all the reserve requirements. And uh, so, uh, so after that, what they can do is the, the reserves that they don't have, they could just borrow it in the funding market later on. So when they, whenever they have to account for it, they could just borrow it, like, you know, right. boom, you're done. And the funny part is after, due, due to COVID-19, the Federal Reserve actually reduced the requirement, uh, the reserve requirement to 0% from 10%. So banks usually, banks they basically don't use Yeah, they can just create credit and they're not. <laughs> so they basically have no cost of creating credit and oh they could create what it is so they could do it, but. And so is that more of like a safety net almost? Just, I feel like they would want to have that just in case, because. What do you mean? Like the well, reserves? Well, I mean, well, 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 if you're a bank, what do you do right now? You just wait? No, you just wait. <laughs> like, right now, so right now, all the reserves are piling up because for the banks, it doesn't really make a difference to own treasuries or to own, um, or to own bank reserves. You know, they're both just assets on their balance sheet and they're both considered liquid assets on their balance sheet. So right. it doesn't really make, so make a difference. And in fact, for them, in fact, for them, reserves are actually safer because treasuries tend to be volatile. You know, we had events like March and et cetera. Where, uh, we saw, where we saw a lot of volatility in the treasury market. Right. Uh, banks don't want to be subject to that kind of volatility, even though they could just hold a bunch of bank reserves and you know, they'd be just fine. And so, the, so, for the, so for the banks, it doesn't really matter what they hold. And you know, one of the funny things is, uh, you know, people believe that 
so, so basically what the Federal Reserve does is they actually pay the bank's interest on these reserves. So, you know, it's sort of like an opportunity cost to owning treasuries. So you could have treasuries on a sort of higher yield on it, but it's volatile, or you could have bank reserves that don't change and you get a small interest rate on it. And so what the, what the ECB did, I think in 2015 or 16, is they actually made the interest on these reserves negative so that the banks would actually lend on these reserves and not just keep accumulating them. So the excess well, reserves so are not being lent money, out. Right? Yeah. Okay. yeah, so the excess reserves have not been lent out. There was a negative interest rate so the banks had to pay to keep these reserves and the ECB thought the banks would actually lend and the banks still didn't lend and they just kept accumulating reserves. So that tells you something that number one, the banks aren't confident at all. And most importantly, if there's no credit creation, there's not gonna be any inflation. And you know, we saw the EU deflate for basically a lot of the last decade, so. Right, and when you say the bank's not confident, what would they not be confident in? Buyers' ability to pay off credit? Right, exactly. You know, when you have so many people unemployed or you know, when you've got all these problems, they wouldn't be happy to lend. Of course. So, you know, especially right now. And oh, even if they lent, you know, it's not going to be that lending that creates sort of a very high amount of inflation. Well, I, and well, when you say, because I mean, I imagine they are still lending like small amounts to small people who have good credit scores. But just when you think of the percentage of how, like, compared to everyone else, I, they're lending at probably 1% of the rate that they would have been lending beforehand, right? Exactly. Yeah. And just curious, based on your conversations you've had with, with, for example, the hedge fund managers that you've learned all this from, is it often like where the banks probably aren't really checking the reserves until something like what happened in March were to happen? Or just asking uh, for your opinion, like... What do you mean? So could you say the question again? Like, well, I would just... Because the way I see it is just that, like, you know, again, if you're a bank right now, you're almost just, like, you're waiting it out. Right. It sucks because most people can't wait it out. They don't live their life and prepare to wait it out. You know what I mean? So right. yeah. it makes me wonder if, if banks are just strategically playing this as an investor <laughs> as anyone else would be. In some way, yeah, because... They, they have no incentive to rent, uh, lend right now. Like, I don't know, if you were a bank, would you lend with 800,000 people on unemployment? You probably oh, no. wouldn't. No. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I wouldn't either. And, you know, you've got this risk, you know, in the next six days after, you know, after this, and if the stimulus bill doesn't get passed and, you know, the eviction, all the evictions go out, you know, and millions of people could get evicted. You know, if the, even if the stimulus bill goes out, that, that only lasts till the Biden administration comes in and yeah. the Biden administration would only have five days to actually you know, sort of put an end to eviction for, say, another year or at least, say, for another few months so that they could actually buy time. But, you know, otherwise, at, at the start of Jan or if Biden doesn't do anything at the start of Feb, you know, you're going to have a lot of evictions that, that go out. And, you know, when do you are, think that's going to start? You think as soon as January? Well, it depends on uh, it depends on the stimulus. Uh, you know, right. I don't know if I don't know if uh, I don't know if it's actually going to get passed. From what I know, uh, Trump vetoed a bill. Um, I don't know if he's uh, and he vetoed stimulus bill because he wanted two thousand dollars and not six hundred dollars. So, well, I think he I, also commented recently, but then Congress was like, "No, we're not going to." Which is just insane. Like, Congress for, is the problem. <laughs> Mitch McConnell. Oh man, you know how I hate Mitch. What a monster. But like. And even that, what's crazy is just that recent stimulus package, there was the Safe Banking Act, which all it would do was allow cannabis companies legally operating in legal states to just get the same rights as any other business and open up a bank account line of credit. What does Mitch do? Well, this 5,500 page document, I'll just kindly take the Safe Banking Act back, Safe Banking Act out, treats anyone related to cannabis like minorities as well. It's just, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, but yeah, going back to the rent. Yeah, it comes to you on the 1st of January, which is next Friday. And you know, it's, it's pretty crazy to think about the fact that millions of people are going to get evicted. 
if uh, it's, true. it's know, only 600 bucks like that, that's not going to cover the past few months exactly yeah and so they need like another eviction moratorium like you know over the last year we've had a ban on eviction so you know you're not allowed to evict and you know i believe there's also sort of a moratorium on rent as well so if people can't right. pay their rent you know they don't pay their rent but um yeah so that's going to be a problem and then what the, the major problem in uh march was the fact that you know we started having sort of a repo problem so repo is basically you know overnight i'll give you i'll give you a treasury and you give me some cash and i'll do what i have to do with the cash and then you know i'll give you the cash tomorrow morning and you give me the treasury back and you know we're done right that's what like bank of canada does with the um, yeah with a lot of the banks here and same with the federal reserve and you know this happens you know trillions of dollars every single day every night it's how they make money off this one percent right yeah yeah exactly and you know one of the funny things is you know banks can uh, banks can use the same collateral to do different repo transactions so let's say i've got a portfolio of treasuries you know I could do a repo with you, then I could do a repo with someone else, you know, and you could do this five to six times. And, you know, this was probably like the single biggest factor that actually caused Lehman to collapse. It was collateral. It's not actually, you know, the subprime crisis and all that kind of stuff because subprime crisis was smaller in terms of the impact that people believe it actually had. Um, the bigger problem was this repo crisis where people weren't, uh, and I could send you an article after this podcast, but um, yeah, sure. so, so the biggest problem was actually collateral. It was not... Um, it was the fact that uh, Lehman Brothers used the same collateral repeatedly to do these repo transactions, and they used the same collateral all of the, so five to six times. So you know when things get bad and people want the collateral and not the money, you know they don't have the collateral to actually give back because they've got six creditors and you've got one piece of collateral. So yeah, so uh, and similar thing happened in uh, in March because. People started, uh, so there's a difference between off the run treasuries and on the run treasuries. And as I understand it, off the run, there's sort of like older treasuries and on the run is like newer treasuries. So if something is issued like today, or no, it's just issued a few weeks back, and that would be an on the run treasury. And otherwise the other one would be off the run. And so dealers started to sort of differentiate between off the run and on the run treasuries. So, you know, that would be the only thing they would actually take as collateral. And we saw a spike in the repo markets. And, it was sort of a monetary phenomenon that the Federal Reserve doesn't really have any control over. And, you know, there was this massive uh, selling of treasuries because everyone wanted cash and everyone wanted dollars. And, you know, when things get bad, you know, you want to own some dollars. And, yeah. And then people scramble for them, I imagine. Exactly. And well, I mean, this just goes to show that, like, hey, the banks aren't your friends. Right. <laughs> like, they're, they're, they're working in the back end, preparing what to do. And it's just like anyone that you know, doesn't just think about the rates or whatnot and overextending the amount that they might take in debt. It's just, it's, it's, it's a wake up call for sure. Um, yeah. And then just anything else that you wanted to share, uh, that you think is useful because again, I mean, I, dude, I think the value that people could get out of listening to this in your podcast a thousand times more than anything CNN or the news is going <laughs> to spew out at them. Yeah. I mean, it's probably like keeping in mind that, you know, the inflation actually comes from people believing there's inflation that the Federal Reserve says, you know, we're printing all this money, you know, all these accounts and all these uh, media channels. They also say, you know, the Federal Reserve is printing all this money that people get scared. Okay. And so know, what causes the inflation? Gonna... Would that just be like uh, yeah, it's, it's, creators it's... create like artificially raising prices themselves or like, no, no, no. it would be sort of like expectations policy, which is what the Federal Reserve actually wants on. So, you know, Federal Reserve says, okay, we're printing all this money, you know, CNN and CNBC, everyone says, okay, the Federal Reserve is printing all this money. And the person watching, you know, he doesn't know that the Federal Reserve can't print money. So he believes uh, what, the, what they're saying. And then what the Federal Reserve does is, well, sorry, what the, what the person does is uh, they go out and buy a car because, you know, they're scared. Okay, you know, 
few months from now, prices of cars are going to be 10%, 20% higher. You know, that's actually going to be, that's actually what actually creates the inflation. You know, all these people who have no idea what's going on, they go ahead and they buy a car. And really, so it's, go it's and buy stuff. That, that go out and essentially uh, buy stuff money flowing in the economy. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's the only way the Federal Reserve can do it because they don't have any control over the money supply. If they could control the money supply, they could, they could just create inflation like that. You know, with the snap of the fingers, you know, they would just create inflation. Right. Like, and who, 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 at the end of the day, has the ability to just increase rates? That's the Fed, right? Or in what sense? Um, well, because, uh, well, obviously, there's like the general interest rate. And then there would be anyone who gets a loan from a bank has their own interest rate. But it would depend if you're getting an, an auto loan or like, I guess, a mortgage. But um, like, what would be the next trigger or catalyst? for, you know, let's say lenders wanting their money back and rates would suddenly just increase to 5%, which would just affect so many people. Like who would essentially be behind that? Is that the Fed or would that be banks? So the Fed usually controls what the Fed funds rate is. But the Fed funds rate usually, you know, when times are good, it's, it's usually a good uh, indicator of uh, what normal interest rates are. So the Fed okay. funds rate is a good control, like they're not, market they're rates and autumn rate. an indicator? Yeah, yeah. so they are usually correlated okay. in it. Uh, in good times, so when things are normal, you know, Fed raises rates, you know, you know, market rates are probably going to head higher, etc. We saw market rate hit a record low in the U.S. I believe just a, uh, just a few weeks back. So, you know, so you know, rates are at all-time lows. So, you know, when the Fed reduces rates, you know, your cost of borrowing is probably going to go down as well. But then the interesting thing is when things get bad. So, you know, a lot of people believe that. Uh, the subprime crisis or the crisis of 2008, the great financial crisis began with sort of the collapse of Bear Stearns. But you know, if you take a deeper look, it actually started on August 9, 2007, because the Federal Reserve was able to control um, the LIBOR rate, which is sort of uh, what, what, um, which is sort of like an international uh, rate where, uh, let's say, well, sort of like let's say two banks in the U.S. wanted to borrow from each other or something. I, I'm not exactly sure what the mechanics of LIBOR are, so okay. I'm not I'm not going to uh, comment on that, but. Uh, it's uh, but sort of like the Federal Reserve was able to control what LIBOR was with the, with the Fed funds rate. And, but now what happened was that LIBOR and the Fed funds rate broke off. So, you know, the, Fed, the Federal Reserve did not have any more control over what LIBOR was and LIBOR spiked. And, you know, they were, the Federal Reserve lost control over what, over what was happening. And that was sort of the actual trigger for the cloud. Uh, well, the that was the credit, credit crisis before even the Great Recession, right? Yeah. So that was probably the best indicator that, you know, things were getting really bad. And, you know, we saw that in 2020 as well, where, uh, in March 2020 as well, where you know LIBOR spiked when the, when the Federal Reserve was trying to cut rates, and you know uh, yeah, they were they were unable to control uh, LIBOR once again. So yeah. Okay, and I guess yeah, no man, dude, this is a good education. Thank you. And I guess my last question would just be: so when the Fed were to say issue more um, debt for someone to buy, is it only just U.S. buyers, or are there buyers from Europe and other banks also? trying to get in on that yeah there are there's foreign central banks who also try and you know bid for these treasuries at auction so you know when the when the treasury or the u.s treasuries issues these treasuries the foreign central banks come in and buy them up because they want to have u.s dollar assets of course and, right it's it's the exactly uh, right it's the global reserve so yeah exactly interesting okay cool well i mean i could keep asking you all day do you have anything else last comment on that and then we can move on but yeah. Uh, so, uh, so far, yeah, probably like the one, uh, probably like the other thing that I would, uh, I would want to mention is that uh, there's probably like a massive, there is a massive U.S. dollar shortage across the world. So that is something that that would be a major theme over the next few years if, uh, you know, if there is another scramble for dollars like they saw in March. You know, a lot of 
people I talk to, they're expecting a quick financial crisis round two, right. where we see another spike in dollars. Um, the dollars, the dollar goes through the roof because people believe that. Um, no, uh, because right now there's sort of a misconception that the Federal Reserve can print all this money, but right. if we see an insolvency crisis, which is what a lot of people expect, and even the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, just reported in their December 2020 or their or their fourth quarter piece that that there was an insolvency insolvency event that was just beginning. So yeah. Oh man, super interesting. Yeah. And I had a question off of that, but I think it's just slipped my mind, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. No problem. Oh, it's too bad. <laughs> That was a good question. Oh, oh, well, I lost it. Um, no, hold on. I think it was related to, so yeah, you said that there's a, a shortage of US dollars out in circulation, but there's also been that stat that within the last year, like 20% of US dollars have been printed in 2020 with, with all the stimulus. So that's misleading. It's, that's, it's, you can't say it's wrong, but it's misleading because okay. It is. Printed reserves, but they're not printing like proper cash. Like they're like the dollars that you have in your bank account. It's not what's been printed. Oh, that's it's not cash. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so you know, most uh, so the Federal Reserve's like to uh, likes to consider bank reserves as money, and so do all these you know these inflationary guys because you now they could say, well, the Federal Reserve has printed twenty percent of all the capital. Oh my God, now we're going to see hyperinflation. Weimar Germany, Zimbabwe, it's coming back. But. <laughs> Is there another uh, current like economy that is potentially going to see what happened to Zimbabwe in the past? Because we haven't seen that in a very long time. Yeah, uh, from what I know, uh, none of the major countries, like for example, Bank of Japan, from what uh, the Federal Reserve can't, I know the ECB cannot print money. I'm not sure about the Bank of Canada, but for the most part, the major central banks across the world, they don't have the power to print money. Um, I believe China can, but otherwise... um, they don't have control over like the direct, uh, like their direct money supply. So you will have to see sort of a rewriting of the FRA, the Federal Reserve Act, if you want to see the Federal Reserve actually create money that that is inflationary. So that way, that would, <laughs> yeah. No, I was just gonna say money, right? Like learning it as a topic is just never ending. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the thing is, the Federal Reserve can't define what money is either. So. In 1990, I think it was 1990 or 1993 or somewhere around there. So Alden Greenspan admitted that you know, they couldn't define what money was. And I could get into this uh, for another five minutes if you let me. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so basically what happened was uh, earlier the Federal Reserve used to target what was money demand and money supply. But the Federal Reserve lost track of what money supply really was. And they had to shift to targeting just Fed funds. And, you know, and Greenspan admitted this in the early 1990s. There's a good New York Times article on this, which I could uh, send to you after. This and interview. anything you send, I'll put in the show notes so that anyone listening can reference yeah, it. Thank you. Absolutely. So, yeah. So what I was going to say was, in uh, so uh, taking a, a big step back in history. So in 1960, there's something called the Euro dollar system that was created. So basically what this is, a uh, Euro dollar is basically a US dollar that's on an offshore deposit. So let's say there's a US dollar in the Swiss bank account. That's that's a Euro, uh, that's a Euro dollar. And it actually has nothing to do with Euros or Europe. It's just a dollar that's sitting outside. So it could be in Japan. So if there's a dollar on deposit in Japan, uh, that's also uh, that's also a Euro dollar. And I'm familiar with that from studying from the CSC. Yeah, the different yeah. ways of categorizing that. Okay, keep right. going. Yeah, so basically, what it was, so basically there's only about $4 trillion in money supply. That, uh, but there's about $16 trillion in Euro dollar debt. And I remember reading uh, from one of the hedge fund managers that I interviewed, his name was Brent Johnson. I remember, if I, if I remember correctly, he put out a piece uh, where he said that 
by 20, in 2021 to 2022, there's a massive amount of this debt that's coming due. And the Federal Reserve cannot print, uh, because they can't print money, they can only print reserves. So they don't have the money or they don't have the ability to sort of stop this crisis. The, probably the biggest or the best antithesis to that would be that if they refinance the debt or you know they reorganize it, but that can only happen after this becomes a problem. And when this becomes a problem, uh, we're gonna see another scramble for dollars where the US dollar goes through the roof. And there's this mismatch between the supply of dollars and the demand for dollars. And you've got this Federal Reserve, which has sort of a, and when I borrow this term from Jeff Snyder, who was another guy I had on the podcast. Um, yeah, the Federal Reserve has a 1950s view of today's economy. And in the 1950s, there was no Euro dollar system. And you know the Federal Reserve was able to function just fine as a domestic banking uh, authority, a domestic banking regulator, and not as a central bank. But today, you know, the Federal Reserve has no idea, number one, uh, how big this euro dollar system is. Actually, no one does. And, you know, uh, the best estimates are about 16 trillion to 20 trillion. It could be much larger. And, you know, the funny thing is the Federal Reserve does not actually have control over like euro dollar USD transactions. So what's the best way to deal with the problem? Don't look at it. <laughs> exactly. And you know, let's say like a bank in the Cayman Islands wants to deal with a bank in Singapore in US dollars. And uh, yeah. that the Federal Reserve has no control over that. They don't have any control over this. And if this is like the majority of the dollars in the world, if this is what like, you know, most of the dollar system is doing. Right. And the Federal Reserve has no control over the most of the dollar system. You know, that's not a very, that's not a very good scenario to be in for uh, the Federal Reserve. So, so, so what does that tell you potentially in the next few years? Potentially in the next few years, we might see, uh, number one, you could possibly see a repeat of the great financial crisis. And we could possibly see a spike in the dollar once again. Again, we again, there's all there's obviously thesis that you know we don't because you know, the Federal Reserve can print all this money. And <laughs> but yeah, uh, right. And I just want to ask the last question on that. But did, does that have any uh, like because obviously before 1971, I think they were still on the gold standard. Right. So taking the dollar off the gold standard, did that have an impact on like what's led us to now? Well, actually, no, because the dollar technically went off the gold standard in 1960. So oh, it was the, the no, 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 no. So it officially went off yeah. on in 1971. You were right on that when, when Nixon took us off the gold standard. But before that, the, uh, the bank, uh, the banks don't like the, uh, don't like the gold standard because they're not allowed to create, uh, they're not allowed to privately create money right. the way, you know, today they were able to, you know, to, they're able to just lend and that creates money, but they were not able to do that in 1960. So what they had to do was, they had to go offshore in order to create uh, new money. And this Euro dollar system got started with something that was called, I believe, banker's acceptances in 1960. So where say Japan and Sweden wanted to do a trade together and they would agree, uh, you know, J- uh, Japan's currency in 1960 wasn't too liquid, neither was Sweden. So what they agreed to was sort of a banker's acceptance. So the, J- the Japanese converts it to, uh, converts their currency to US dollars, which they pay to Sweden. And then Sweden go, uh, converts those US dollars into Swedish kroner. And, you know, there's no reason for a Japanese company to be carrying Swedish kroners, and there's no reason for a Swedish, uh, Swedish company to be carrying uh, Japanese yen, and that lets you sort of the advent of the U.S. dollar system. But yeah, so that's that's really where it got started, and eventually, you know, that started getting out of hand, and, you know, this euro dollar system developed, and it started getting bigger and bigger, and, you know, in 1971, it was sort of forced, they were forced to take us off the gold standard, and yeah. Wow, and I wonder, because, like, Imagine if if they printed that, like, let's just say all the U.S. dollars, that's 16 trillion that's sitting in these random accounts that are eventually due. That would be like incredibly inflationary. Like, absolutely. Right. And those would be like, 
50-year loans or like, I guess, like long-term period loans that people just forgotten about? Uh, I, I don't know, actually, because right. it's very hard to keep track of these things because, you know, it's... Well, I imagine it's not easy to find, right? Yeah, exactly. It requires a lot of research to actually sit down and find, number one, how much debt is getting due. Number two, you know... Uh, you how know, to understand you, what you're looking at. Yeah. And yeah, figure out, you know, where do we, where can we get these numbers from? You know, we've got to figure out, you know, it's USD denominated debt. So, you know, if it was denominated, if, if Indian debt is denominated in rupees, then, you know, the India, the, uh, the Indian government could just rewrite uh, their, their um, central banking like app. Central bank, yeah, is, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the central bank could just print money and they could pay off the loan. That would be inflationary, but, the, you know, they would, be, they would get done with the loan. But then... Right. That would not be the case in this system because number one, the Federal Reserve is the only one that can actually print like real dollars other than sort of the commercial banks, which can lend them into existence, but they can't like print print dollars in a sense. That's how do it. Yeah. And and how has this changed your view on cryptocurrency over the last year? I think like probably like the solution to this would be something that has to do with blockchain and digital currency. Decentralized using the yeah. technology of blockchain, right? Because the gold standard wouldn't work because we saw what happened in 1960. The banks are just going to try and get around the gold standard instead of going for it. So that, that led to the creation of this euro dollar system and uh, these bank reserves. Uh, sorry, the euro dollar system and these bankers acceptances that I just mentioned, you know, Japan to Sweden. So... Yeah, so uh, the gold standard wouldn't be the right solution here. And similarly, the current solution where, you know, the Federal Reserve does not have any control. Uh, that would be, uh, so it'll probably have to do either something with blockchain or another solution would be to sort of have an inflation futures market where, you know, uh, where the where people, uh, where the market bets on what inflation will be. And then the Federal Reserve uses the, these inflation futures and they buy a certain amount of government debt with like proper cash. So as long as inflation futures are under 2%, the Federal Reserve buys, and if they're over 2%, the Federal Reserve sells these treasuries. And you know, they print, you know, they print, they like literally print cash um, when futures are below 2%. So, you know, that would be a good solution. And, you know, in that way we could just get rid of the Federal Reserve and, you know, we just replace it with this uh, kind of the simple computer program, you know, if right. futures and under the, and 2%, buy. <laughs> yeah, and sorry, I'm just gonna say that that's like a new structured financial approach to kind of beat it. Like it's yeah. not something that that's would, been practiced before. Right, exactly. And you know, if you had to create sort of a new monetary system, uh, you have to take into account this euro dollar system that's that's massive. You know, this fact and the fact that bank uh, banks will try and get around uh, gold standards and pegs and stuff like that to uh, make a profit. So, wow. Yeah. And I just think that's where people don't really understand how much control the banks have as the centralized right yeah. Uh, yeah. control. Whereas that's why Bitcoin and blockchain are show so much potential because it decentralizes that, which effectively right. doesn't allow the banks to control what's going to happen in the markets, gives power back to us. Yeah, exactly. But I Ooh. don't know if it's going to be Bitcoin or if it's going to be blockchain, uh, blockchain but it's probably going to be something around there. And yeah. yeah. Well, it's just something too that I've learned recently because I, I did start, I've owned Ethereum for a while, but I started buying a bit more Bitcoin. It's just that the amount of the world that doesn't have, you know, can't rely on the central bank style. Just, you know, so much more of the population of the world would want decentralized because that's the only right. way that they can improve their situation. And so. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the other thing for Bitcoin is, you know, it's still, there's no Bitcoin ETF. So if there's a Bitcoin ETF and all the mutual funds, all the RAs, et cetera. Oh, know, so the banks can take advantage of it. Yeah, no. And then right now, if there's an ETF for Bitcoin, you know, all that, everyone's going to start buying it up and yet that will massively boost uh, Bitcoin prices because, you know, when people buy a lot of one thing, you know, it leads right. to higher prices. Yeah. Right. Well, that too. Yeah. Cause I'm just realized, cause it's like the, the banks, I imagine they don't want to get in bed with Bitcoin because like they would want to crush it. Yeah. 
Uh, Otherwise, though, the only way to get in would just be to play the game with everyone. And <laughs> exactly. But I don't know. It depends on what's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. But hey, good time to start paying attention, man. No, thank yeah. you, dude. Your podcast has been amazing. It's educated me so much, especially on this, this very complex topic. So I just want to thank you for everything. Thank you. you know. Yeah. And so how do you go about getting on these, these guests, like hedge fund <laughs> managers in the U.S.? Yeah, I do. So usually, you know, I either DM them on Instagram, uh, on uh, Twitter. So if their DMs are available, otherwise, you know, I try and find their LinkedIn. It's because if you connect with them on LinkedIn, you can usually uh, sort of get their contact information, get their email, you know, just send out an email. And that's what, that's usually what I've done for the most part. Otherwise, you know, the, the like the last ditch solution is probably like, there's a website called rocketreach.com or something like that. You could search a rocket reach, you'll probably find it. And then for the, for uh, uh, you could get like five, free contacts so you know you could just search up random people and you could get their contact information from there so yeah okay cool yeah i mean it's just good on you for taking advantage of that man because the amount of people that you're getting in contact with and being able to reach it's just like that, that just goes to show the power of the internet it's amazing definitely like probably the internet is probably the biggest the single biggest thing that's ever happened and yeah. yeah, and just like my parents slept on it. <laughs> so many people, just no expectation, right? Yeah, exactly. Not, not understanding yeah. it. And, uh, you know, came with time. So let, let me just ask then uh, about over the summer, you you, uh, you got your first job, didn't you? Would you, uh, yeah, well, I obviously, you and I worked together so that I could, yeah. uh, I paid you to help you grow my Instagram account. Yeah. And you did a wonderful job. I just want to ask, how was your first boss? And uh, what was it like working for someone else? actually pretty fun you know it's always good to have jordan hotley as the boss you know (laughs) good i'm glad to hear that because that's my first run at it (laughs) yeah it's awesome jordan's gonna run a multi-billion dollar make more capital incorporated (laughs) soon so that'd be fun you know i'm I'm just enjoying the process man but yeah no i mean clearly you you figured out the instagram game with with growing an account on there so like what are some things what are just some tips that you'd recommend for people that want to grow an account on social media I'd probably like just stay focused and you know, sort of keep uh, keep posting. You know, that's something I need to get back to. Uh, I've been stacking off a bit, but yeah, Me gotta too. keep posting. <laughs> yeah, you have to keep posting. Post every single day. You know, use thirty hashtags. Uh, well, and you know, if you're smaller, use a smaller. Uh, use hashtags with smaller reaches. So, you know, focus on say one thousand to fifty thousand views or one thousand to hundred thousand um, views. That kind of hashtag. And don't use like the bigger ones because you probably won't get noticed by them. Yeah. So yeah, that would be my biggest uh, piece of uh, piece of advice for people trying to grow on Instagram. Good. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, we've been growing the account for a while. It's just like it's not easy. You got to keep at yeah, it. Yeah. You got to keep at it. It's it's yeah. hard work. It is. It's it's very tough work. And I'm even getting to a point where I'm just kind of like with with the financial education stuff. It's tough to keep doing, saying the same thing over and over again, right? So, um, but no, man. I mean. Yeah. It's also like harder to monetize on Instagram because you know right now on Instagram you have like hundred you got like hundred thousand uh, hundred uh, accounts with thousands and hundred thousands of followers you know all over the place so it's very hard to sort of uh, monetize your account because number one you have to become extremely competitive because uh, because you've got to compete with all these larger accounts for shoutouts and stuff and you know shoutouts usually they make you like twenty to fifty dollars yeah. per shoutout and you know unless you get like really really big you can't you can't make too much money off these shoutouts so. You could probably charge a hundred dollars per shout out. You know, say you get two hundred or two hundred thousand followers, but that's it. Yeah. So the better way would be to sort of use Instagram to grow and to attract attention to a podcast or to Twitter or something else. So yeah. 
That's a good point. Yeah, because Instagram is saturated. And if, if, if I mean, if, if anything that we've learned, it's amazing how the financial or the personal finance community has even grown over the last two years. But yeah. it's just, it's gotten very... It's, it's, it's getting saturated. Like, there's too many accounts there. So you'll, yeah. you'll have to, and, like... And everyone's now showing off their net worth and stuff. I'm like, that's not the point. Oh, it's <laughs> kind of annoying. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not to show off how much... It's You want to lead by example and, and educate people and, and not to... I think, you know, showing off money is leading by example for them. Huh? Well, that's true. It is. It's, yeah. I paid off $50,000 to that. Beat that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but the, exactly. I mean, again, not to say it's just not my strategy yet, or at least, but yeah. it's just more and more accounts like that. And it's like, okay, we get it. <laughs> but no, I mean, either way, it's good. Uh, did you comment on my post today? Make sure you do for the giveaway. No, I didn't. I just... Uh... That's okay. I, I posted just before we hopped on, but uh, comment your name or just Absolutely. comment Merry Christmas. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Okay. A few more for you, Shreve, though. You, you don't have anywhere to be? No, I don't have anywhere to be. It's Christmas. Okay. You I know. <laughs> well, hey, dude, I'm having fun and I got a few more questions for you. So, here, what, what's another one? If you could be the spokesperson for your generation and could tell the older generation, like your parents or anyone their age, a few things that they should understand about kids your age. Um, that would relieve some of their irrational worries. What would that be? Uh, probably that most of us are probably going to be all right, and you know we're probably <laughs> going to do pretty well. Yeah, like, even if you don't get, even if you don't go like top of the class, or you know you don't get into Harvard or Yale or something like that, you know you're probably just going to do just fine. You know most people they don't need to be like watched all the time. So yeah, that would probably be it. Yeah, well, that's fair. Well, I mean, like, dude, help, help. It's, it's just funny because with social media, we're only seeing sort of the effects now of, of yeah, you know, kind of helicopter parenting or having your kids the, being the feature of your account. And yeah, exactly. But no, like, I mean, obviously, like, sadly, clearly, it does lead to entitlement. Definitely, yeah. And what's your view? Because as an investor, you've got to pay attention to a lot of things now and try to predict what the outcome is going to be. So just like, what's your outlook on the, on the future of things? Are you confident, are you optimistic and just excited to keep investing? So like as an investor or like on the market, or what are you referring to? Just the future. Okay, so just the future. Well, in terms of the stock market, I'm pretty bearish because uh, I wouldn't go short anything, but I'm pretty bearish. Despite all that, you're getting, still bearish? <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's getting irrational. It's getting a little exuberant right now, so. Getting irrationally exuberant, so uh, yeah. So uh, it's I think you know, I think people should be more cautious when it comes to investing, with, at least with the current where, where markets are right now. But yeah, for uh, as a future as a future career investing, I probably say it's it's got a, it's got a, it still has a long way to go because you know as long as capitalism exists, rich people are going to exist, and as long as rich people exist, you know you're going to still have hedge funds that you get to manage, and you probably you can pitch rich people, and, you know, say you know I'm going to manage money. And, and well, what's also interesting about investing is just like, you know, you can obviously work within the financial services industry and get the qualifications, but at the same time you've shown it and I can at least, I've at least proved to myself that you can also read books in your own time and have just as much success with the exactly. adult buy and hold strategy. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's probably the easier way to do it. Just read books and, you know, try and learn and self-educate because it's a lot easier to learn when you don't have to write an exam than to learn and when you have, when you have to write an exam because uh, exams sort of make things a lot more boring and yeah. yeah well it's just like the yeah the pressure and the stress of it because even myself like the, the tfsa is the best thing in canada <laughs> it's, it's easy to, to take advantage yeah. of for that yeah yeah exactly 
and uh, next year I get to open it here. Uh, next next year I get to open a TFSA. So next year, yeah, people. it's too bad. Well, just because like when I put it into context for me, I didn't open one till twenty four. So I was lucky that I had like forty three thousand dollars of contribution room. But <laughs> unfortunately, awesome, if you yeah. if you turn eighteen, you're only going to get the six every year. But of course, if you anything you withdraw does get added back to your contribution room the following year. So. Well, yeah. I've got a question for you. So yeah. you know, in Canada, uh, you pay, you, you take about half of your capital gains and you add it to your income and then you pay income tax on it, right? Uh, that's if you're investing through a, a, a cash account or a non-registered account. So what if you're doing like margin or something? Would that be? Um, yeah. So, so I, I believe you, I don't know. I just don't know if you can open a margin TFSA. No, 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 not a TFSA. I'm just referring to. Let's oh say yeah. So, so you can open account. a margin account. Uh, yeah. it's, it's again, a cash account. It's non-registered. So okay. you would have to pay 50% tax, but if, whether you use your own cash or margin, same thing. So no way. So that would be, so you take 50% of your capital gains, you add it to your income and then you pay income tax on. So what if you have no oh, income? I've never, I've never done it that way. So like personally, I just can't speak okay. to it because I've never used a non-registered account, but they do have margin accounts. Um, right. And I would assume you're still paying 50% capital gains on it. Okay. Now, cause I was wondering, cause uh, if you cause if you don't have income, then you can't like, no, you don't have any income tax to pay. So technically you wouldn't be anywhere. You wouldn't be paying any capital gains tax, would you? <laughs> well, if it's a non-registered account, yet yeah, that, that's where they're getting their income or that's where they're getting their tax revenue from. You mean? It would be. Well, it'd be if you make gains, if you don't make gains. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say you make, make $100,000 trading stocks and you don't have- Well, again, I, I don't do that. So I can't answer Yeah, that. okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> Just like you, you can use a margin account, but I think it yeah. would still have to, like you, it's- Using a TFSA, you don't have to do anything in April come tax time, which is nice, but you need to use a T3 form to, to account for any gains or losses made throughout the year. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, sorry. I mean, I should have said from the get-go. I don't know, but. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All good. Yeah, no. And so um, just curious, because you mentioned as well, like obviously it's been difficult as a student learning from home, depending on the teacher. Uh, what are some qualities that you see from like influencers and educators on, on social media uh, that you think traditional teachers could benefit from if they were to try? Well, I will probably the fact that you know, uh, you don't have to write uh, exams for uh, <laughs> if you if you if you follow make if you follow Jordan Howley, he won't make you write an exam off his content. So, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, exam and marks aside, like they do have to measure, of course, your progress. But like, I guess I would just say, like, what is something that teachers are really missing that? they should try to bring to the online experience. If that, that might be a better way to frame it. Yeah, probably. Well, I, I actually don't know because <laughs> I'm fine with the online way that, the way it is. Um, I would probably say that I would probably, uh, I personally like like going to actual school, but you know, being at home and doing it is also pretty fun because, you know, because, you, know, uh, you know, you can, uh, you, you, for example, if you finish all your work, you can do what you want. And yeah. But yeah, I don't, I don't really know what, I don't really have an answer to your question because I don't really know. Find what, yeah, no, that's fair. But um, well, do, do you mind then just commenting on like, because teachers, it's such a tough topic to talk about. Like, have you, have you had an experience of say good teachers and then also some mediocre teachers, would you say? Yeah, I have for sure. And the good and teachers. what's the giving, biggest difference between good ones and less good ones? Well, good teachers. Uh, the biggest difference is that good teachers give you marks and bad teachers don't. <laughs> They give you marks pretty easily, uh, but yeah, the the biggest difference would be that they're able to explain uh, concepts a lot more simply, a lot more easily, and you're able to understand what they're saying compared to say someone who is a worse teacher. They can't explain, 
that you don't understand what they're saying, you know, they just give you assignment after assignment, but yeah. Yeah, so I guess it's not that, like the lack of clar clarification. Most, yeah, mostly. Where yes. communication is the most important thing, right? Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And so do you have uh, friends that are entrepreneurial as well as you or like that, that are interested in investing or is this more of just something you, you know, you're lucky that it's something you like to do? It's mostly just me, but I, uh, in terms of like school, like most people, they're more into like stuff like programming and gaming and stuff like that. But um, I'm probably like the only one that I know at school who's like very into investing and like, you know, does it like 24 <laughs> seven. Nice. Yeah. And like, do you, do you get questions from students though? Or like, do people start noticing what you're doing on the side? I mean, the usual question is like, how much money have you made? But of course, eh? well, I guess maybe the, their, their question asking originality range is very small. Yeah. Are you rich yet? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, like, even just the fact you got your podcast. Like, what stock should I buy? And, you know, that kind of stuff. Of course. Okay. So, well, it sounds like you are the Warren Buffett in the making then. Uh, <laughs> there's already a Warren Buffett of Canada, so I can't really take that title, can I? Is there a Warren Buffett of Canada? There is. There's a guy named Prem Watsa who's uh, who runs something. Who runs a company called I think it was Fairfield or something. Okay. Uh, and he's worth over a billion dollars. So he's uh, well, he was he born in India, Canada. <laughs> yeah, he's he's worth over a billion dollars, and he runs Fairfax. There we go. Fairfax Financial Holdings. He's been oh. called the Canadian Warren Buffett. Yeah. Interesting. I actually I remember when I first invested in 2017, a friend of mine recommended I buy an investment called. Uh, well, not recommended. He just considered uh, Fairfax India Holdings. So just the name. Made yeah, he's huge on investing in India. No. Yeah. So he must, he probably manages that, that fund that I, or that, I think it was a trust or stock that I owned. Anyways, a uh, long time ago. Well, what about Charlie Munger then? I think you could be the Canada Charlie or the Canadian Charlie Munger. And do you mind? Yeah. Talk, telling us about how you were able to get a question off to him and have him answer it. Yeah, that, uh, uh, him, asking, him answering a question that was like pure luck because um no dude i swear though the, the question you asked was perfect because you said hey i'm a 16 year old and again you ask that question you plug that in there people that have experience that have done it are always gonna be like this kid's hungry and he wants to know but plugging it in hey how what's the best advice for someone that wants to take up investing for a yeah, living uh, yeah i think like you know putting the fact that i'm 16 uh, it probably helps uh, but yeah if you put if you put a fact that you're 16 and then you know you, you send in the question, there, there's a there's a higher chance that you know people are going to say yes. You know, it's a kid. You know, why not? Or you know, it's a kid, so you can help him out. Still young. And what so, was yeah. his answer? You basically said that you got to be fanatical, or you got to approach stuff with a lot of fanaticism. So you've got to have a deep passion for it. And you know, Warren Buffett, he was investing since he was like 11, so and he's doing it today. So that's some fanaticism. That's some passion. Um, yeah. And then he also said that, you know, you've got to start early, you know, in anything for life, you've got to start early, you've got to keep going, and you've got to work very, very hard. So, and you're only going to work hard on something that you're really passionate about. So, yeah. Yeah, dude, that's like, what is it? Passion, practice, Vision. persistence, yeah. patience. Yeah. That's it. I, that's all I can think of. <laughs> awesome, Shreve. Well, thanks so much for coming on and uh, catching up. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for man. having me. Oh yeah, you're welcome. Um, where can people find more about you online, your podcast, and what you do on yeah, Market Friends? Champions? And you can follow me Twitter, Instagram, OE Investor. You could probably just search that up, you know, pop up. But yeah, and then I just recently started a YouTube. I think less than a month ago. So it just started three weeks ago. So that's that's doing okay. It's not. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just three weeks. It's just three weeks. Exactly. Yeah, Get it's your... doing pretty good. 
my expectations down a bit. It'll be a lot easier. <laughs> trust me. Yeah, for sure. Hey, you've got yeah. more followers than I, or at least you've got more subscribers on YouTube than I do already. But right. even okay. though I only have 160, I love that because 160 people are watching in, watching my crap. Really? Yeah. So it's cool. Yeah, so last thing, then, Shreve. Uh, what are you looking forward to in 2021? Market crash. <laughs> <laughs> you would say that. But yeah, for 2021, probably, hopefully, you know, COVID vaccine that's actually started, uh, making sure the COVID vaccine is successful, you know, vaccinated everyone. So, you know, if that gets over, you know, we get done with COVID, go back to a normal life. So that would be, be probably the biggest thing to look forward to. Yeah, going back to normality with a lot of good positive changes, I think, for working from home. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, probably doing some other podcasts with you know, other bigger people. So, yeah, that would be pretty cool. Good, man. Well, hey, I'll, I'll be tuning in as one of your biggest fans, of course. And uh, <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on and Merry Christmas, man. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Have a great day. And that is it for episode 71, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it and got some value out of it. And if you did, I would really appreciate it if you could share it with any friends or like-minded individuals, or especially go leave a review or rating as it really helps my channel get seen organically. And I really appreciate it and love to know who's listening. You can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, and at anchor.fm slash highlyinvested. And I want to wish everyone a happy new year. Go and get yours in 2021. This is your host, Jordan Highly signing off. Stay highly invested in yourselves, everybody. Till next time.